0: Good morning, I'm Duarte Giraldino.
1: And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news, and how the world's best journalists are covering
2: them.
0: On the final night of the Republican National Convention, President Trump cast himself as a defender of traditional values, a savior of the country.
2: This election will decide whether we save the American dream or whether we allow a socialist agenda to demolish our cherished destiny.
0: And like the speakers who came before him this week, he issued a stark and at times dystopian warning.
2: Your vote will decide whether we protect law-abiding Americans or whether we give free reign to violent anarchists and agitators and criminals who threaten our citizens. And this election will decide whether we will defend the American way of life or whether we will allow a radical movement to completely dismantle and destroy it.
1: That's been the overwhelming message of the week. From Don Jr. on opening night to the president last night, Republicans painted a picture of a country overrun by angry mobs, lawless, violent.
0: Anarchists have been flooding our streets.
1: When you are in trouble and need police, don't count on the Democrats. They want to abolish the suburbs altogether.
2: Murders, shootings, and violent crime are increasing at percentages unheard of in the past. We're seeing the return of rioting and looting. No one will be safe in Biden's America.
1: If the message four years ago was make America great again, the message this week has been, we were on the path to greatness before the coronavirus hit, before the racial justice protests started, and now we're a country on the brink of destruction. And just like in 2016, Donald Trump says he's the only one who can fix it. So today, let's spend some time looking at the central argument of this convention week, that America is descending into chaos and violence.
0: Strategy-wise, we've seen this type of political messaging before in the 1970s, and Mm -hmm. it worked back then. Richard Nixon campaigned on law and order. Like Trump, he was losing in the polls to his opponent, and there was civil unrest and anti-war protests nearly every day in the U.S. Now, during this time of unrest, Nixon was able to convince enough voters— If they elected a Democrat, the country would fall into anarchy.
1: Yep, and we're going through a similar period of civil unrest right now. And some voters are looking for reassurance about who can pull America out of this moment. The Atlantic cites a series of focus groups conducted by a group called Republican Voters Against Trump. It screened people whose political views fall just right of center. And many of them said as protests for racial justice continue around the country, they fear the violence will spread to their own neighborhoods.
0: And you can understand how some voters might feel that way when you see images of people setting fire to storefronts, vandalizing buildings and businesses. Some protesters have been filmed throwing rocks or water bottles at law enforcement officers, but this is only a small slice of this story. Don't forget, police officers in riot gear have also been filmed using tear gas and shooting rubber bullets at nonviolent protesters, and in some cases, they've severely injured even blinded people. And yet, despite those images and videos, by and large, these demonstrations have been peaceful.
1: You know, Dorote, there's something to be said about whether you see these protests as largely peaceful or largely violent. There was a study done in 2018 and 2019 with close to 2,000 participants. All of them were Americans. And they were asked how they identify politically. And then they were presented with a variety of protest scenarios. And this study found when the protesters were described as conservative, both Democrats and Republicans perceived actions like holding up signs and blocking a highway as nonviolent. But when the protesters were anti-police, More Republicans rated those same actions as violent. We are fundamentally divided on what a violent protest is.
0: But let's look at who's been arrested at protests and for what, because from this perspective, you get a little more clarity in what's really happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. The Washington Post did a fact check earlier this summer and found a vast majority of arrests were for low-level offenses related to the very act of protesting things like violating curfew or failure to disperse, some for more serious crimes like throwing Molotov cocktails at cars or buildings. Now, we've heard President Trump and many convention speakers blame the violence at protests like the one in Portland on Antifa, which is an anti-fascist movement with no central leadership or organization. But federal officials say there's no evidence to support those claims.
1: And when you look at who's facing the most serious federal charges, you'll find members of a far-right extremist group known as the Boogaloo Movement. This is an anti-government group whose members want to take advantage of civil unrest to incite another civil war, basically to see an end of the political system altogether, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center.
0: In 2019, right-wing extremists were responsible for two-thirds of terror-related attacks and plots in the United States. That's according to the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is a centrist Washington think tank. And in the first four months of 2020, right-wing extremists have been responsible for 90 percent of politically motivated attacks and plots.
1: And now several people who used to work at the Department of Homeland Security are saying they spent years warning the Trump administration about the rising threat of right-wing domestic terrorism. Politico interviewed current and former law enforcement officials, both inside and outside DHS, for the story. And according to their accounts, concerned DHS officials drafted detailed plans and urged the department to devote more resources toward preventing domestic terror attacks. They pushed the White House to make it a top priority. But at nearly every step of the way, their suggestions were ignored or minimized. Plans were dropped and pleas fell on deaf ears. For four nights at the RNC, members of the Trump family, administration officials, and ordinary Americans have praised the president. They defended his character, they defended his record. But what did we learn about the party platform this week? What policy changes would a second Trump term bring? David Frum, writing in The Atlantic, says just look to Republicans in Congress, look at the talking points on conservative media, and now this past week of speeches. Taken all together, they tell us a lot about what we can expect. From by the way, is not a Trump supporter. He is a lifelong Republican and served as a speechwriter for George W. Bush.
0: And he says one thing that's at the top of Trump's list is reducing taxes, particularly for the wealthiest Americans. You saw this already during Trump's first term, and he pledged to continue slashing taxes in his speech last night.
2: I will not raise taxes. I will cut them, and very substantially.
0: And ending America's reliance on China is part of that goal.
2: And we will also provide tax credits to bring jobs out of China, back to America. And we will impose tariffs on any company that leaves America to produce jobs overseas.
0: To reach that goal, Trump says the U.S. will need to not only defeat Beijing economically, but also militarily, in space and at sea. He calls our relationship with China under Trump, quote, a zero-sum game. When China wins, we lose.
1: Now, on health care, throughout his first term, as Trump has pledged to dismantle Obamacare, he's also repeatedly said that he'll be announcing his own health care plan, well, soon. Last night, he promised.
2: We will always and very strongly protect patients with pre-existing conditions. And that is a pledge from the entire Republican Party. Thank you, Kevin. We will end surprise medical billing, require price transparency, and further reduce the cost of prescription drugs and health insurance premiums. They're coming way down.
1: Vox has an explainer on what we can expect to happen next on the health care front. Just days after the election, the Supreme Court will hear a case that could determine the fate of the Affordable Care Act. Now, the most drastic outcome would be the court sides with conservative states and finds the whole law unconstitutional. That would mean millions of people would lose their health insurance during a pandemic. A more narrow decision could eliminate protections for pre-existing conditions. Or the court could uphold the law. In Congress, there's not a whole lot Trump and the Democrats agree on. At least in his first term, the president wasn't able to strike any grand deal on health care. But they do agree on the need to reduce prescription drug prices. So that could happen.
0: And finally, immigration. It was the cornerstone of his 2016 campaign. Trump fulfilled a lot of the promises he made four years ago. He banned people from several Muslim countries from coming to the U.S., he tightened the southern border. He emboldened ICE, curtailed the ability of immigrants to seek asylum, and through family separation, he sent a very clear message to would-be migrants. If you come here illegally, you risk being separated from your children and your spouse. What would four more years of Trump mean for immigration?
1: Immigration reporter Gabby DelVal writes for the Washington Monthly magazine that we'll continue to see an expansion of his first-term policies. She notes that a large share of migrants apprehended at the border come from India. So we could see restrictions from migrants from there. Also from Cameroon, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Eritrea. We should also expect to see more funds diverted from the military to pay for the border wall. And she writes that the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, is encouraging the Trump administration to give immigration judges broader authority to make quick decisions without giving immigrants or asylum seekers a trial.
0: You know, Shamita, there was a lot in last night's speech that Americans won't agree on. But one thing we can probably all agree on. This is the most important election
2: in the history of our country. There has never been such a difference between two parties or two individuals in ideology, philosophy, or vision than there is right now.
0: You can find all these stories and more on the Apple News app.
2: And while you're there, check out some of our
1: latest audio stories. Esquire magazine profiles Jamie Harrison, the candidate running against Lindsey Graham this fall. And California Sunday magazine brings us inside the Life Care Center in Kirkland, Washington. It was the first COVID hotspot in the United States.
0: We'll talk with you again on Monday.